I'm Richard Niles, inviting you to jump on my mellifluous magic carpet to the moon in the company of The Arrangers. And who better to score the romantic yet hip soundtrack for tonight's show than the master of mood music himself, Paul Weston. It's music that no matter how cynical you might be in daily life, it can give you a bit of a buttress. It can counterbalance your otherwise sour mood. Grown-ups were buying albums, and they definitely wanted to come home and take their shoes off and put on something relaxing. When people call a lot of easy-listening elevator music, they're pretty much right. They're only wrong in thinking it's bad music. We had uh, great times together. I remember how we used to look forward to recording sessions because we loved the music we were able to do. Uh, it was just such a pleasure. We often wondered why we got paid. Glad that we did. <laughs> Singer Joe Stafford there talking about her husband, Paul Weston. As an arranger myself, I'm always interested to know how other people found their way into this unusual profession. The lovely Joe Stafford, who made her name as lead singer with Tommy Dorsey's vocal group The Pied Pipers, takes us back to the early days of Paul Weston. He was in a very bad accident when he was quite a young man and uh, spent several months convalescing. And in that time, surrounded himself with books all about music and about arranging and about the different instruments, how you wrote for them, etc. And that's when he first got into arranging. And I think once he did that, he realized that for him that was, that was it. I think you'll find if you listen to his writing, you'll hear lots and lots of Rachmaninoff and lots and lots of Ravel. Some Wagner, not a lot. Mostly Rachmaninoff, I think, who was a great orchestrator. Paul Weston graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth College, where he majored in economics. This means he was a clever cat, and it was at Dartmouth that he began to get into music with a college band called the Green Serenaders. His first big break came with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, and he went on to become their arranger during the band's peak period from 1935 to 1940. It was there that he began to hone his craft, arranging for singers like Dinah Shore, Bing Crosby, and one of the few songwriters who recorded their own songs in those days, the great Johnny Mercer. Paul Weston went on to become music director for Mercer's Capitol Records. But despite his jazz credentials, what Paul Weston became best known for was his mood music. Titles like Music for Dreaming, Music for Romancing, Music for My Love, Music for a Rainy Night. You get the picture? These evocative titles brought the new post-war leisure-hungry audience into the record stores, and Weston was dubbed Master of Mood Music. Donald Clark wrote The Rise and Fall of Popular Music, and Joseph Lanza is author of the fascinating book Elevator Music. 
I wondered whether they thought Weston deserved his title as mood music monarch. Yes, he is. He really marketed it in its original uh, format on album. As a matter of fact, he arguably created the term easy listening because in the 50s, he was said to have overheard someone describe his music as uh, making for great easy listening and he appropriated that and put out an album shortly thereafter called Music for Easy Listening. And mm. I think that was the, that was the catch-all phrase which uh, continues today. He said that all he did was add strings to a dance band. And um, that's essentially what he did. And his album sounded incredibly civilized and uh, intimate. Uh, one of his tricks, for example, was uh, in order to uh, avoid having the strings drowned out, he would have the rest of the band play quietly instead of amplifying the strings, which would have been easy to do in the studio. But that, uh, that made a better sound, a more intimate sound, and uh, the arrangements hold up to this day because there was nothing gimmicky about them. It's funny because some people think, well, this is just uh, background music. You don't really get involved with it. You get very much involved with it because most of those melodies, I mean, if you take the music of Paul Weston, this is all very emotional music. It's very sentimental music. So there's always, even the stuff that you would hear on, on, a, on a ceiling speaker in an airport, if you listen to the music, if you took those recordings home and played them on your stereo, they would, they would evoke emotional memories. It's definitely emotional music. I think we have this misconception that to be emotional means to over-emote uh, before the microphone and wail and have music that just pounds at home, but uh, there's, there's a lot to be said for the emotional power of subtlety and for underplaying and underarranging. Cornet Magazine came out with an article shortly after, uh, I, I guess it was in the 50s, shortly after uh, Weston established a great track record for these releases, and they, the term was creamy on the melody, and that summarizes it to me, because it's it's very rich music and it's very sweet, and there's, there's kind of a childlike attraction to it, because it doesn't have a lot of that enforced bitterness of, you know, barroom jazz or the, you know, the bluesy stuff that makes you think about how horrible life is. Uh, mm. The music I like makes you think about how sad it is that your lover has gone, but it kind of gives you a, a bit more of a rosy outlook. As I mentioned earlier, Paul Weston was no dummy, studying economics. His intellect was reflected not just in his music, but also in the careful management of his career. In short, he realized that music and money had more in common than five little letters beginning with M. As a matter of fact, I think it was an about-face from his big band past, because around 1945 there were already signs that big band was waning. And what he had done is he just decided to take an approach that he called creamy on the melody. And the only vestige of any jazz might be the 
the quasi-improvisations that you may hear with the horns on the, you know, various tracks on uh, albums like Music for Dreaming, for instance. But it was, it was a decided departure from any swing or jazz or big band. Something was going on in the early 50s, which I don't know how many people were aware of it at the time, but in fact, the soldiers came back from the Second World War and started families, and, uh, and then we had the baby boom, as we all know. But the thing is that uh, the country was becoming more and more prosperous, and, and people had modern record players, and uh, grown-ups were buying albums, and the singles market was being abandoned to kids. There were more and more novelties. I, I interviewed Paul Weston once, and when we talked about this, the type of recording session began to change from making an album to making singles. The whole uh, attitude and approach was different, and a lot of the singles that were being made were never intended to be on albums unless they were compilations of greatest hits albums came along later, but an album was a different concept. And Weston had already made one of the first concept albums at Capitol Records in about 1943 on 78s. They made an album of Johnny Mercer songs with Mercer singing and with Joe Stafford singing and with Paul Weston in his orchestra. So he was into concepts from a, a, a very early time. Weston was completely aware of the cultural changes going on in the 40s, and the emergence of concept albums was a logical step for him to take. Well, I think the first music to benefit from it was music like my own. In other words, if you could put together six songs on a side that were songs of the 40s and that were mood music listening, that's what people wanted. Paul Weston there making clear that he knew the commercial gains to be made from producing concept albums, like the music we're listening to at the moment from Music for Memories. Unforgettable, isn't it? But was his progression from jazz into mood music an entirely calculated move, or did it just happen naturally? The idea of just having music for the background I guess was part of a marketing strategy. At first it was the 10-inch LP, and then you know, by the late 40s it was the 12-inch LP, but it was meant for consumers, and it's odd that it, the first album came out in 1945, because it wasn't really until the, the, the truly post-war years that consumer listening for the home hi-fi became popular, so he truly was a pioneer in that field. It didn't have to be a decision on Paul Weston's part to do this kind of thing. That's, that was the center of pop music at the time. It was jazz-influenced dance band music. And uh, in the late 40s, some of the band leaders, like Tommy Dorsey and the rest of them, were adding strings. They were just doing that because they thought it would uh, make the product uh, sweeter as far as the public was concerned. A lot of the arrangers didn't really know what to do with strings. The music with strings really came into its own in the studio. And then, of course, the long-playing albums came along, and that's where Paul Weston and the rest of them uh, probably hit their peak. He felt the pulse of middle America and the desire to hear straight melodies ungussied by any jazz distortion is, was very strong then, much stronger than it is today. He truly did fill a void. People wanted to hear instrumental music that you did not necessarily have to dance to. The notion of having music as background uh, it was a quiet revolution. Like other arrangers before and after him, including your friendly presenter, 
Paul Weston found his profession to be a sometimes thankless task, where the credit goes to the composer and performer, not the arranger. The guy who spent many sleepless hours writing the music, creating the sounds that made an average song into a hit and a great song into a smash, had to be satisfied with a small fee, no royalties, and, if he was lucky, the admiration of fellow musicians. Since that admiration doesn't pay the rent, Weston joined a group of his contemporaries and made a stab at gaining a little more of the public's attention. Well, I think what actually happened might be called an arranger's revolt. Arrangers for many years were sort of the unsung people who, like moles, stayed underground and did their work and then maybe were allowed to show up and take a little bow at the record session. And I think it occurred to some of us that conducting wasn't all that tough and why shouldn't we be up there conducting the session and doing the arranging rather than someone else doing the conducting and taking the bows for the arranging. And uh, for a while, we weren't the greatest conductors in the world, but that wasn't really terribly important because a lot of it was just nodding your head for the band to start and shaking it for the band to stop. And so uh, we learned our craft sort of uh, on the floor and became what you would call arranger conductors. Having established himself in the 1940s as an arranger-conductor at Capitol Records, Weston made the move in 1950 to rival outfit Columbia. There, he worked with stars like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, and Doris Day, while he continued to have hits with his albums of mood music. One of his most lucrative collaborations at Columbia was with a group called the Norman Luboff Choir. charge of albums on the West Coast for Columbia Records, he signed the Norman Luboff Choir. Goddard Liebertson, who was uh, president of Columbia at the time, was sore at him. They thought uh, that wasn't going to make very good hit albums, and Paul Weston said, well, I've signed them and we're already scheduling some recording work and we're going to do an album of um, American Western songs. And Goddard Liebertson said, who the hell cares about Hopalong Luboff? And in fact, they made a series of albums, uh, similar concept albums, and they all made the Billboard albums charts. is the one that, that stands out for me because it, it truly was one of those, um, I like to use the word surreal a lot because although 
uh, the music nowadays seems very middle of the road. There was just something very dreamlike, I guess, and uh, ethereal about the, the, the way he just had the, uh, the strings just play in this very sweet and airy uh, style. He was, he was trying to give a, a, an atmosphere and a mood of very sweet romance. And I like to call it an, an urban form of innocence in a way. You, you had a little bit of the sophistication implied with, with the little horns in the background and uh, the, the Tin Pan Alley melodies, but there was a sense of innocence with the, the sweeping strings and uh, the music encouraged you to envision some kind of an ideal fantasy world. Paul Weston married Joe Stafford in 1952, and they worked on many, many projects together. But what was it like to come home to Paul Weston? You'd be so nice to come home to. You'd be so nice by the fire While the breeze on high sang a lullaby You'd be all that I could desire He would work alone. We always had a place where, wherever we lived that was his studio where he could go and, and uh, work. And he would work uh, for when he was writing his own things, he would work alone. If we were preparing something, he, he loved to have me sit with him and talk about it and see if we could kind of get a bead on which direction we were going to go. I would say he worked primarily alone, with the piano always. <laughs> I had memories of sitting on the floor while he was writing. He would write at the piano and he would always have a pencil in his mouth. As he arrived at a voicing, he would take his pencil and, and notate it. I remember sitting there several times and <laughs> distracting him to the point where he said, you can't talk to me when I'm doing this. Because I'd ask him a question and he'd be writing and then he'd notice that he didn't write what he had played, you know, because I'm bugging him over here. Tim Weston, son of Paul and his mother, Joe Stafford. It might as well be Spring with Margaret. I thought that was a, a lovely record. He tried to get me to record it, but my heart was set on another tune from the same score called That's For Me. And so I did that, and, and uh, Margaret did It Might As Well Be Spring, and I cried a lot. 
I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever, but I know it isn't spring. I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams. I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing. I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud or a robin on the wing, but I feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well be spring. In 1947, Joe Stafford had shown her sense of humor when she recorded under the pseudonym Cinderella C. Stump on the comedy hit Temptation. But there's another comedy project that Paul Weston and Joe collaborated on, and this unexpected piece of musical satire won them a prestigious Grammy Award. used to have a thing that he did just for fun at social gatherings or he would get up and play this version he had of Stardust. One night at a, a big meeting that Columbia was having a, a big convention gathering in Key West, Florida, and they after they finished their meetings, a bunch of the men went over to a little cocktail bar to have a drink. And there was a piano player there playing who played an awful lot like Jonathan. As Paul said, there are not a lot of great piano players hanging around Key West. And uh, so after this fella finished and left, Paul went over to the piano and played his Stardust version. And uh, some of the guys, uh, George Avakian and Irving Townsend from Columbia, said, you've got to make an album. And, you know, he thought they were putting him on, and, and but they weren't. And they said, no, you've really got to think of making an album. So uh, on the way home on the plane, he started mulling it over. But he decided he just couldn't go for 12 sides all by himself. So that's when he dreamed up Darlene. He knew that uh, he'd heard her sing, and uh, he knew she'd fit right in. So she did four sides on the first album. And then they became true partners from then on. I dodged the same old taxi cabs that I had dodged for years. The chorus of the squeaky horns was music to my ears. Oh, lady known as Pess, romantic and charming, has left her own companions and faded from view. Lonely men with lonely eyes are seeking her in vain. Her streets are where they were, but there's no sign of her. She has left the same. 
Weston was uh, doing his own thing with Columbia Records on the West Coast, and uh, and he got away with a lot. He said that that was the Mitch Miller era, and when Paul Weston did his own thing on the West Coast, the idea would cool off each of the 3,000 miles on its way back to New York, and he had no idea what they thought of Darlene and uh, Jonathan Edwards. Paul Weston would purposely play the piano ever so slightly badly, and Joe Stafford would purposely sing ever so slightly off-key. She virtually had perfect pitch, so she could also sing ever so slightly off-pitch. And <laughs> the BBC had a, a producer in Scotland, for example, a few years ago, who was Alan Bunting, is a friend of mine. I guess he was a sound engineer or something. And when they were having auditions for an apprentice, they would play these records for them, and they would say, uh, the question would be, uh, suppose somebody, somebody came to you with this recording, what would your reaction be? <laughs> if they immediately perceived that there was something wrong or that it was a joke, then they might get the job, but <laughs> otherwise they didn't. <laughs> and of course, every once in a while, they'd run into somebody who said, that's Jonathan and Darlene, and they'd be like Jack Sperling, the drummer at a recording session, kept falling off his chair laughing and had to replace him. Those things are really, really funny. Uh, he would play nine beats in a bar, and Joe said that's, that's so that he gets an extra stride. Paul had a, a lot of lovely stories to tell, and they obviously had a lot of fun doing those uh, Jonathan and Darlene albums. The delectable sounds of Jonathan and Darlene Edwards. And Joe Stafford had one of the prettiest voices you'll ever hear. Almost as pretty as mine. And fortunately for you, I'll be back the same time next Friday for one final trip up the arranger's stairway to the stars. And I do mean trip, as we hear from the bizarre king of space-age pop, that wild and certifiably crazy guy, Juan Garcia Esquivel. Meanwhile, equally insane thanks to Joe Stafford, Tim Weston, Donald Clark, and Joseph Lanza, and psychotropic thanks, too, to my possessed producer, Elizabeth Clark. Okay, I'm crazy enough to think I'm still Richard Niles on The Arrangers. Radio.